we just read Second Chronicles 16, verse 9, the first part, and then Acts 13, 22. And the theme this month, it being Valentine's month, is the heart. The heart. Last week we spoke about generosity, the generosity of the heart. And this week I just want to talk about the heart in another way. And this is the heart after God. Let's first look at the problem and then we'll get into it. The World the World's Health Organization. I'd love to start a message starting off with quoting from the World Health Organization. <laughs> Always gives legitimacy to my message. The WHO, not the group, but the World Health Organization stated that CVDs or cardiovascular diseases, and this is back in May 2017, are the number one cause of death globally. More people die annually from CVDs than from any other cause. An estimated 17.7 million people died from CVDs in 2015. Get these numbers. And let's look at this from the perspective of heart problems. More than an estimated 17.7 million people died from CVDs in 2015, representing 31% of all global deaths. Of these deaths, an estimated 7.4 million were due to coronary heart disease and, and 6.7 million were due to a stroke. It suffice it to say that we live in a world that does not just have spiritual heart problems, but physical heart problems. We're not gonna talk about physical heart problems here, but I wanna talk about the heart problem and I wanna talk about a heart after God. We struggle so often with inconsistencies in our lives, don't we, with failure with other people's disappointments, with other people's failures. But I think many today, they misdiagnose the real problem. The root problem is not an obedience problem in Christianity. The root problem is not a problem with sin or even an issue of not desiring God enough. Because Jesus resolved all of that in his life and in his passion for God's will and his obedience to death. The problem here is a much larger issue. And I'm afraid very often, spiritually, spiritual heart disease is misdiagnosed with something else. When we look at, and I just want to look at a few verses here. I want to look at a few um, words. Break this down in a way that can help us. Spiros Zodiades in his, um, in his dictionary, describes perfect from the Hebrew word shalem. And it's an adjective meaning full, complete, safe, whole, and peaceful. When the heart is described as the perfect heart in First Chronicles 16, verse 9, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, the first part of the verse, the perfect heart, I think, when we think of the word perfect, we are thinking of a word that is... Of a, of a heart that is without error, that there is nothing wrong with that heart, that there is, that this is a heart that is absolutely perfectly obedient and without any problems or without any sin. But the Hebrew word 
In the Hebrew mindset, it is a different definition. It's an adjective that means full, complete, safe, peaceful. This adjective has several uses, and it means to be in a safe place where it's unharmed. Moses instructed the Israelites to build an altar on Mark Ebel. It was to be a natural altar, an altar that did not have um, broken stones, but they were to be stones that were totally whole in Deuteronomy 27, verse 6. The only stones that were whole, finished, and from a rock quarrying quarry could be used to build a temple. God could only use rocks in the temple, Solomon's temple, that were whole rocks, that were not broken or formed or chipped or in any way modified. 1 Kings 6, verse 7, the word describes the work on the Lord's temple as finished and complete. Another, another way to interpret this word, perfect heart, means a finished heart, a complete heart, a whole heart, a healthy heart, a safe heart. This is in an interesting contrast to another word. This is a word, perfect is a word that describes an undivided heart. Because in the Jewish mind, they were not thinking like the Greeks. Greeks counted everything. Greeks divided everything. Greeks segregated everything. Greeks had a way of compartmentalizing everything. And we see that in a society today, don't we? We see that in technology. The Jewish mindset was, is that it looked at it from a holistic point of view. The whole heart. It meant a heart that was undivided. Another way to look at it was a healed heart. A healed heart. And that's the first point I want to make this morning. Is that a perfect heart that God is searching to and fro throughout the whole earth is a healed heart. In 1 Kings 11 verse 4, we remember what it was described, how, how Solomon was described his heart. That he didn't have a proper heart because it was divided, it was distracted. A divided heart, and I was just thinking about this this morning, it dawned on me. A broken heart creates a divided heart. A broken heart creates a divided heart. When someone is wrestling with divided hearts and divided interests and divided attention and divided worship and a divided, divided um, preferences and a divided uh, words and a divided lifestyle, it is because the origin of that is a broken heart. Brokenheartedness in this world, in this city, in spring... We see it every day, don't we? We see broken-hearted people. Broken-hearted because their heart was entrusted to something and it broke their heart. And that creates a lifestyle of dividedness. It creates a lifestyle of double-mindedness. It creates a lifestyle of double-faced, two-faced. It creates a lifestyle of hypocrisy. Because the problem needs to be properly diagnosed and the diagnosis is that the divided heart is a broken heart. How many of us here this morning have been in a place where our hearts were broken? Brokenheartedness. If you're a human being today and you're breathing and you can count to 10, then I'm sure that at some point your heart has been broken already. Brokenheartedness. King Solomon had a broken heart. Why? Because we can see it in his lifestyle. He had many, many women in his life. He had many, many interests. He was pursuing many types of wisdom. He was a man that was divided. He had a divided heart. Watchman Nee says this in his book, Worship God. I just want to read a couple quotes because they just struck me so in such an amazing way regarding 
worshiping God with a whole heart, a perfect heart. All spiritual experiences, and listen to this, okay? All spiritual experiences come from an inward seeing. It's a seeing of the heart. We can have no real experience apart from seeing. And I'd like to add to what he's saying here, seeing God, seeing Christ, as Paul did on the road to Damascus. It is fatal for many people to hear anything because they immediately try to do it. They try to act it out. Let me read on here. In another part in the book, Watchman Nee writes, A perfect heart is an honest heart. Think of these words with me. A perfect heart is an honest heart. God is not afraid of those who kick against the goads. Saul kicked, remember? But he was honest. He was honest. God is only afraid of the actors. God is only afraid of the actors. Watchman Nee continues, I, on the contrary, am more afraid of those who hear and do, because for many it is only dead works. They are acting it out. They are trying to produce it. It is not we who have to produce anything. It is God who does it. Amen? It is not us that have to try to produce it, but it is God who is acting, who is doing it. Pastor Schaller, in his book, Biblical Psychology, writes this. It is not just the actions themselves that are important. The heart behind the action is just as important, if not more important. Man can be fooled, right? He might not be able to discern the true motivation behind another person's behavior, but God in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7 sees the heart. He saw all the good works of Amaziah, but he also saw that these works of Amaziah were not done from a perfect heart in 2 Chronicles 25 verse 2. What are we getting at here? Where, where, where are we going with this? Let's go back to the original question that I asked at the beginning of the message. The problem is not an obedience problem or a sin problem, nor an, an, an issue of desiring God. Jesus resol- resolved all of this in his passion for God's will and his obedience to death. Here's the point I want to make, and please tune in. It is a heart issue. And the question here that needs to be asked is, where is our heart? even deeper question would be who has your heart that is the big question i want us to be thinking about that as we move towards in this message i have a story something i read last night and something that really struck me when i read about it and i'm sure that you've heard this but i'd like to read into a little bit of it and this is going to this is going to be such an interesting story remember the afghan girl in 1984 uh, the photographic portrait by the journalist Steve McCurry. I think the picture's up there. Remember this picture? Remember this woman? She was an Afghan. She was an adolescent girl with green eyes, as you can see, red, heart, red headscarf, looking intensely at the cameras of the journalist Steve McCurry. This photo became known as the modern-day Mona Lisa. The image became emble- emblematic. Em- emblematic? <laughs> of a refugee girl woman located in some distant camp. And the picture created massive compassion from the Western viewer. Only in 2002, the subject of the photo, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, was identified as Sharbat Gula, an Afghan woman who was living 
in a refugee camp in Pakistan during the time of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Upon publication of this cover on the magazine, many, many, many men wrote to National Geographic inquiring how they could meet her and how they could marry her. (laughs) They fell in love with this picture. (laughs) McCurry himself was so enraptured by her eyes and by this look that she had, it was described as as a glamorous but gritty look that she has. He was so enamored by this, by this picture that he had taken, that he, had, he went back several times and unsuccessfully found, uh, unsuccessfully in his search, was unsuccessful in his search in the 1990s to locate her. In January 2002, again, the National Geographic team traveled to Afghanistan to locate this girl, Gula. McCurry, upon learning that the, that the refugee camp that she was in was soon to close, inquired of its remaining residents, one of whom knew Gula's brother and was able to send word to her hometown. However, a number of women came forward and identified themselves erroneously as the famous Afghan girl. So I'm, the, I'm her. In addition, after being shown the 1984 photo, a handful of young men erroneously identified Gula as their wife. Oh, that, of course, that's got to be my wife. The team located this girl, Gula, finally. Then at the age of 30 in a remote region of Afghanistan, she had returned to her native country from the refugee camp in 1992. Yet he still could not meet her because she was married to a devout Muslim man, and that would have been improper. Eventually, her husband died, and the team was able to visit her. They took pictures of her, and what they found was a woman that looked like she was 60 years old in her 30s. What's the, what's the point? What captured me in that story? McCurry's heart was so arrested by this girl's haunting eyes and, her, and by her difficult situation that he was just pressed to go back to Afghanistan time after time after time to find this woman and to help her out. Here's the point that I'm making in the story. Whatever arrests our heart will be the true treasure of our heart. Whatever arrests your heart and my heart is going to be the true treasure of my heart. And we will effortlessly give, and we said this last week, for that treasure. And not only will we effortlessly give, but we will effortlessly give all sacrificially. We will give generously even to the great, even at great cost to ourselves, not counting how much it is costing us, but counting its sheer privilege and joy such as this journalist, McCurry. Here's the application. This is not going to be a long message this morning because it's just a simple point that I want to make. Here's the application. Every time Paul speaks about the will of God and the believer's sanctification, every time he's speaking about this to his churches, he does it in the sphere of intimacy and great tenderness. Every time Paul says to, he speaks to his church about sanctification and maturity, and in growing, he does this in the sphere of just great intimacy and great tenderness. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. I don't need you to turn there, but just, just listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Before those famous verses of verse 13 that we're going to read, read in a moment, he says this. He prefaces this exhortation. He says, my, he says, my dearly beloved. My dearly beloved, if we could see his face as he's speaking to his church, he is saying this with just such passion and such intimacy and such love for his church because he's got the love of God 
as he's speaking towards his church, he's saying, my dearly beloved, Paul's treasure here, part of his treasure, his treasure was in this Philippian church. And he said, my dearly beloved. And he goes on in verse 13, and this is in the Amplified. He says, not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectually at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power and the desire both to do and to work his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. Now, what is that verse telling us? That verse is telling us that when the heart, and we see this in Proverbs 23, verse 26, when the heart is enraptured and arrested by the love of God, when we see Jesus Christ, when we see him with the eyes of our heart, when we see that he laid his life down at the cross, when he gave it all, when the one thing that he had left was the robe, he, he, he had it lost, it was divided up and it was sold, uh, it, was, it was gambled for. Jesus gave everything, even his blood and his life. He did that all because of the joy that was set before us. He was thinking of you and I. We said that last week. When we think of that great love towards us, when we think of the incredible journey that God takes in Psalm 23 where it says that grace, mercy, your grace and mercy, your, and there's different ways to translate those words, have pursued me all the days of my life. Isn't that amazing? We were here with the team yesterday. We we're just sitting here talking and planning and describing what, you know, just thinking about what we could be doing. And we we're just saying that, you know something, we all love when we are pursued, don't we? We love that. When someone takes the time to pursue us, to find us out, to chase us down. To, to connect with us. And this is what the love and the grace of God has done. It has pursued us. We are here today because something pursued us. That was the grace and the goodness of God pursued you and I, and that's why we're here today. We have been pursued by God's love and by God's grace because God sees something in you and I that is extremely valuable. What is that? What is that? Our good works, our greatness, our behavioral modification programs know God sees Christ in us. He sees the blood of Christ in us. He sees, he sees you and he says, I love him and I'm pursuing her and I'm pursuing him and I'm pursuing that team. Why? Because God values us. Where is the treasure of God? Where is God's heart today? It's in his church, isn't it? It's in his body. That's where the blood of Christ is. This is where the heart of God is. And you know something? If we understand the body of Christ correctly, we gather together and people are going to get set free. They're going to be set free from social inhibitions. They're going to get set free from personality disorders and personality defects. All of us have some weirdness in our personality, don't we? You leave us alone and we're going to gravitate to some real weirdness. Every one of us in this room, every single, including myself, leave us by ourselves without the body of Christ Put us in a room by ourselves and we're going to get weird. We're going to start thinking weird. We need the body of Christ. And that's why we need to draw near to... When we say team and when we say that we're a team, this is what the team is. We are a body. We are a body. Why? Because we're the treasure of the Lord. Wake up in the morning. Look at yourself in the mirror as you are brushing your teeth with that ugly toothbrush. And just think, I am a treasure of the Lord. Amen. I'm loved by God. He rejoices in me. There's not a moment in the day that goes by that God is not thinking about you. How many of you have won trophies? How many of you have ever gotten trophies in, in, in some kind of competition? And you put them, we went to Mike's, his 
sanctus, sanctus whatever you call that, sanctum, <laughs> the, the inner, the inner holy of holy places. <laughs> and we were up there praying with some guys, and and uh, he was showing us all the sacred. You know, I like that. I, I'm the same way. Just all these mementos that are sacred. You know what God has in His throne of grace in His throne room? He has He has trophies of grace, and that's you and I. He has trophies. He's got a trophy of Christian. He's got a trophy of of Marcella. He's got a trophy of Trevor. He's got trophies of everyone in this room, on his, in his room, in his throne room. And he, he looks at them. And sometimes he picks them up and he shows them to the devil. Not that the devil's in there, but he says, across the great gulf fixed, he's showing to the devil, have you seen my servant, Mike? Have you seen my servant, Wes? That's the book of Job, isn't it? God takes us. He takes Job and he goes, he goes to the devil. He goes, you know what? Look at this man. And that just, God takes the grace of God that is in your life and he rubs it in the face of the devil. And that's just what God enjoys doing that. He just loves doing that. He loves gloating. God loves gloating in his victory at the cross. And that just makes the devil more, more angry. This is the way we have to think about ourselves. You know, God has pursued us. God pursues us every minute of the day. God pursues us by his Holy Spirit. He pursues us by his grace and by his mercy and by his love. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing you. It's a pleasant type of annoyance, isn't it? You ever have someone that's texting you nonstop and you're really busy and it's getting annoying because someone is pursuing you? God does not get annoyed by our spiritual text messages to the throne of grace. God, I need you come through. He's not a new, he is pursuing us. And by the way, he is there before we even seek him. Isn't that beautiful? That before the prayer is even prayed, he is answering that prayer. That is the beauty of the sovereignty of God, that God is in so much control. And the, and the world looks at the sovereignty of God in a fatalistic way that, oh, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen and I can't change it. Well, let's look at it from the perspective and the foundation of the grace of God, that the plan of God in your life and in my life is based on his goodness and his grace and that his thoughts towards you and I in Jeremiah 29 verse 11 and towards Israel, they are thoughts of peace that we may have an expected end. We look at our lives and we say, you know, I got I to gotta make sure that my 401k is all set. You, know, you see these advertisements on, on TV. What are you going to do about your future? I don't know. I mean, we do know. We have a plan, but... God knows, and we can trust our future to the Lord. The point I'm making here is, is that when we allow this grace and this love and this joy and this Savior to enrapture us, to arrest us, remember in Song of Solomon, the, the woman arrested the heart of Solomon. And remember the dialogue that's going on there. Arrested hearts and and he is pursuing her. This is the same attitude. This is the same way that God works with us today. His grace and mercy pursue us. And that is why in Psalm 20, in Proverbs 23, verse 26, you know, some of the Proverbs are actually notes, maybe, that Solomon wrote as a teenager from his father's instructions. He says this, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways just such a foundational verse and i want to bring this into the application here my son give me your heart this is what god is asking us to do every day 
when we look at the problem of failure, when we look at the problem of disappointment, when we've disappointed ourselves and we get up in our religious mentality, we say, I gotta work harder, I gotta try harder. But the, but the problem really is a heart problem. And he's saying, my son, give me your heart. Again, a command in the sphere of intimacy, tenderness, and love. My son, give me your heart. Let your eyes observe my ways. There's another way I want to read this. And I think it's faithful to the original. When you and I give our heart to God, we're going to observe and move in our life. Amen. That is a Old Testament commentary on this New Testament verse in Philippians 2 verse 13. We give God our heart. It will be God who is energizing and creating in you the power and the desire both to will and to work his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. Let's wrap this up. David's heart was arrested and raptured by God's own heart for him. And this is all the Psalms. David just had a, had a revelation of God's love for him as a boy. And in the wilderness, he's writing these psalms, these stories about the love of God and his heart enraptured. David's heart was arrested and enraptured by God's own heart and for Israel. David, as a leader, understood God's heart for Israel. We can't lead people. We, as a husband, I can't lead my family if I don't understand God's heart for my family. As a wife, I can't... I can't, lead my, I can't lead my kids if I don't understand God's heart for my kids. What, am I, what is God's heart for my kids? I can't run a business if I don't understand God's heart for my business. I can't properly budget my money if I don't understand God's heart for my money. God's heart, when we understand with it, when we understand God's heart with these things, then we have the testimony of Acts chapter 13, verse 22, which says, that David fulfilled all of the will of God. David fulfilled all of the will of God. And when you read that verse, I don't know if that hits you the way it hits me. Did David fulfill all of the will of God? I think not, if you read his story, right? But this is a New Testament review of, the, of David's life in one verse. He accomplished all of God's will for his, his life and for his generation. Give your heart to God. Give the broken heart to God. If the heart is broken, if you have a divided heart, don't live in condemnation in verse 8, chapter 8 of Romans, uh, verse 1. There is no condemnation. Don't live in condemnation with a broken heart. Addictions begin with a broken heart. Uh, Bad decisions in our life begin with a broken heart. Take the broken heart, surrender it to God, and say, take my heart. And like the words of of this beautiful hymn, by Robert Robinson in 1758. I love these words, and I think of them often. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that we...